0: Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. What is and isn't allowed under RESPA, the Real Estate Settlement and Procedures Act? It's a law that bans kickbacks, including between real estate agents and title insurers, but it's far from clear-cut. That's our topic today on Housing Wire Daily, where I interview reporter Berkeley Hahn about her latest article on the subject of beach trips and other challenges of interpreting respa. Berkeley, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me again. Oh, so great to have you on here. One of the stories I really wanted to ask you about was your recent reporting on respa, uh, which was published. Uh, that article was on real trends, and you know, you open you open it with this anecdote, which I would love to have you tell us about.
1: Sure. So back in late February, a title company uh, in Washington, D.C. called Federal Title contacted me with some Instagram posts from a couple of agents, all of uh, which are from another uh, a D.C. area brokerage called McKearney Associates Realtors, and it's in Alexandria, Virginia. And the post showed, you know, a bunch of these agents enjoying boat rides, drinks, entertainments down in Miami, which I mean, it's late February. Who wouldn't want to go to Miami? And the gathering was uh, in part hosted, possibly paid for. It's very unclear. And I was not able to kind of confirm any of that by a title uh, insurance and settlement services company known as Smart Settlements. And Smart Settlements is also based in the D.C. area. So they're a competitor of federal title. Um, And they had just opened an office in Miami earlier or in late 2021. Um, So this gathering happened, basically, and federal title was frustrated because they viewed it as a uh, violation of RESPA. And, you know, RESPA is colloquially the anti-kickback rule, um, specifically RESPA Section 8. And they felt that this was, in you know, a, a form of a kickback for these agents um, or, you know, some sort of bribe to get them to refer all their business over to smart settlements. So they were they were frustrated by this because they felt that they were playing by, you know, the the true quote unquote RESPA rules, um, whereas you know Smart Settlements was playing by a different set of RESPA rules, and so that kind of got me into this deep dive into RESPA. And basically, there's a lot of gray area of what is and isn't allowed, um, and that's where frustrations like these, you know, that federal title had, are kind of coming from, and what. Confuses a lot of agents, a lot of title companies, and, you know, is a a source of grief as well in the industry.
0: I think that's why it was such a great anecdote to open with because it really perfectly illustrates. The problem right now with RESPA, which is it's so vague or left up to, you know, people to interpret that you can understand both why there was a frustration on the on the part of one, you know, company that was like, hey, we're playing by the rules. And also the fact that it's totally possible the other company wasn't doing anything wrong. It's very, very unclear. For
1: sure. And I mean, on top of that, there hasn't been a RESPA Section 8 Enforcement Act Act um, by the CFPB since 2017. So it's been a while. And, you know, I spoke with a bunch of experts in, you know, RESPA law, and, you know, as well as uh, the general counsel at the American Land Title Association. And, you know, the general consensus is that, you know, it ebbs and flows with whoever the CFPB director is, and, you know, what the greater context of issues are out there. And, You know, if RESPA is a hot button issue and a hot topic, there's going to be a lot of enforcement action and, you know, uh, operators and actors in those areas need to be aware of that. And then, you know, there might be times like right now where there's kind of a lull and that is frustrating because on the one hand, you never know, you know, when an enforcement action is going to magically pop up. And all of a sudden, you know, you have to be really careful. But on the other hand, you know, if you are following the rules in a stricter fashion, it might be a disservice to your business, but you also are less likely to, you know, come under scrutiny for a RESPA violation. Um, But, you know, with the lack of enforcement right now and kind of the lack of clarity within RESPA itself, um, it's, it's hard to know kind of what is and isn't okay, especially in this area of marketing and uh, educational opportunities. You know, there's clear laws like you can't pay for referrals or, you know, do things like that or bribe um, anyone with money or gifts or services and things like that. Um, and joint ventures are definitely allowed. Um, MSAs are allowed, brokerages are allowed to own, you know, mortgage companies or title insurers. That's totally okay. But, you know, what what is kind of wishy-washy is these educational opportunities. And, you know, it was an educational opportunity, a catered lunch in a hotel ballroom for, you know, two hours where something, you know, an educational presentation is put on about, uh, let's say attorney opinion letters, um, or something like that. And there's no, um, you don't have to provide, you know, send referrals in order to kind of be part of this educational opportunity, uh, or is an educational opportunity, you know, an hour presentation over the course of a weekend in Palm Springs. Um, So it's, you know, both have educational components, but kind of what is okay and what isn't. And a lot of these legal experts um, talked about this idea of the rule of reason and, you know, what feels more reasonable and what feels less reasonable. And, you know, even the National Association of Realtors, RESPA, Frequently Asked Questions section, um, there was a question about, you know, educational opportunities. And the answer was... Maybe, but <laughs> when in doubt, refer to the r- the rule of reason. And so, you know, this whole idea of is this okay? Well, maybe. And that's really kind of sums up the frustration, I think, with Respa.
0: I did think that particular part of your story was really just perfect because it was like, you know, okay, here's here's where you go if you have questions to make sure you're staying within the law. Is this is this okay? And then it was like maybe it's like wow super helpful uh, but it's not nars fault it's the the way it's written is deliberately vague right and i thought your point about you know the fact that you can have different entities own the title own own you know the real estate can own the title they can operate in the same building they can be right next to each other and there's still not really that sense of like you haven't you haven't broken any laws by that it just makes it even more confusing there's not a lot of bright lines in in this the way that's written and the way that it's enforced. And so understandably, there's a lot of confusion.
1: Yes, exactly. And I mean, real estate isn't, especially now with, you know, digital closings and all these digital platforms that are aiming to kind of streamline the transaction. There's no more like separate boxes that everything fits into and things are kind of blending together a bit more. And, you know, with RESPA, that makes it even more confusing um, and more frustrating.
0: I remember um, when that action happened, the enforcement action happened. And around that time, there was a lot of chatter about like, you know, what is a RESPA violation? And when you would go to industry events, there would be, you know, a whole panel on RESPA. And these days, I mean, you just don't see quite that, you know, I, there was a um, a panel when I was at the, um, NS3 conference, the title conference on that, but generally speaking, there's not a lot of chatter on that. And if you look at maybe what the enforcement priorities are, it's all about fair lending. It's about fair servicing, um, servicing in particular because of the, you know, the forbearance, um, through the pandemic period and people coming off of that. Um, all of that is under the spotlight and really RESPA to me has felt pretty quiet in the meantime compared to what it was.
1: Yes, for sure. Yeah, the last fine was Meridian Title in 2017. And they were fined $1.5 million for a uh, purported scheme involving mortgage and title kickbacks. So it's, it's been a minute since there's been anything involving RESPA Section 8. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see if it kind of comes back around and comes back in fashion again.
0: It will be. Um, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that. And I think it'll that that is one of the problems with in general regulation and enforcement is there's really, you know, the look back period can be pretty far. But also in, in this particular instance, it's like, do you have other fish to fry? Because it, it doesn't feel like even from the beginning, you know, consumers don't have a great idea of what title company they want to use. How often do they use a title company? And they're usually looking to their you know real estate partners, maybe lenders, but you know to say, well, who do you use and and they don't really seem to care, right so unless you can mm-hmm. show that that a consumer was harmed by some of these things how how much different is it you know if you're and it's a relationship business, real estate in general is a relationship business, so I can see why this is you know why it gave people heartburn back in the day when they thought it was going to be more you know. Eagerly enforced because it was no clearer then than it is now. But people were looking at it and talking about it and being like, "Oh, you know, you better be careful." So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. But I thought it was a great story. It's a future story and really goes into the different depths. And I, I love that you talked to so many people and they were all kind of like, "Yeah, nope, don't don't have any clarity on that for you."
1: Yeah, it was it was a lot of um, you know lack of certainty and. You know, at first I was going into it wondering if maybe, you know, there's a lack of education. Maybe, you know, real estate agents aren't taught enough about RESPA. Maybe title agents like just don't know that, you know, you can't go out giving gifts to um, real estate agents that refer you business. Um, And, you know, I, I, the more people I talk to, they're like, no, there's a lot of education. We do know a lot about this stuff. So, you know, that, that obviously, is not a valid excuse. Um, you know, I just didn't know. So there's there's a there's a lot to unpack there, and it was definitely an, a super interesting deep dive.
0: Glad you're keeping an eye on it for us. We will we will continue to to look for that. A couple of the other stories I wanted to talk about. Um, so you you really have a pretty big beat. So you do real estate, but you also do title, and you know you occasionally occasionally do the mortgage part too. And the great part about that to me is that we know that things are converging. So that title, real estate, mortgage thing. Is happening all over, and one of the stories that she talked about—I don't think they're involved in title—but it was a, a buy side announcing their rebranding as uh, Percy, but also uh, a pretty big, sizable investment that they got. So I would love to hear a little bit more about that. Sure. So
1: uh, on Monday, buy side announced that it is rebranding uh, under the name Percy, and the the name is derived from and honors the company's first inventor, uh, investor, uh, who's a great uncle of one of the founders and CEO, Charles J. Williams IV. And the discussion was that buy side kind of was a bit narrow in what the connotation that it gave off and that, you know, it was only helping people on the buy side of the real estate transaction. Whereas, in fact, it kind of covers a lot more than that. And um, it, you know, helps real estate agents and lenders uh, by providing them with information about homebuyer intent as well as seller leads. So it, you know, covers both coming and going uh, within the real estate ecosystem. Um, so that was kind of what prompted the name change and the rebrand. Um, and then the company also announced that it had raised $10 million in equity funding. And the investments came from various fintech and real estate companies, including Howard Hanna Real Estate Services and leading real estate companies of the world. And Percy said it plans to use the funds to expand and grow revenue by dedicating resources to marketing, sales, and systems integration. Um, and previously, Percy only provided these like the, the lead information about home buyer intent and sellers um, to uh, real estate agents and brokers. But now they're also providing this information to mortgage lenders. Um, and they began working with lenders through the recent launch of Prosperity Home Mortgage, which currently has 565 loan officers across the U.S.,
0: that's pretty impressive. It's a pretty uh big brand when you think they just recently launched.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely a um you know, a a large launch and uh right now where a lot of lenders are doing layoffs and things like that. It'll be interesting to see how this kind of succeeds and continues um Obviously, you know, with refinance volume drying up, information and leads on home buyers and sellers who you know eventually might be looking to purchase a new home and would need a loan would be very helpful to uh, L.O.S. right now.
0: Well, and you know, we we've talked about the fact that you know who's getting to that buyer first—the potential borrower, the potential buyer—and so. This company that's looking to, you know, provide leads, obviously, that's, you know, to either the real estate or the mortgage side. It's pretty interesting.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I mean, normally, as we talked about, real estate's a relationship driven business. And, you know, if you end up, working, you know, you have a lender that you work with and know, but you don't have a real estate agent, you know, your lender will probably, you know, recommend or refer you to a real estate agent or vice versa. So whoever kind of gets that lead has the ability to, you know, potentially channel that business into, you know, other relationships
0: and things like that. Well, and if you have a company here who's grabbing the leads, has the real estate and the mortgage part of it, like uh, no one's grabbing that business, right? They're they're rounding up that business for themselves, which I think is is super interesting, and and to me, will continue to become the trend, you know, either through partnerships or JVs or or through something like this where it's kind of all in one place. I think that that's that's where the future is, for
1: sure. Yeah, that's that's a major goal uh, for a lot of you know different. Uh, prop tech and fintech companies, as well as title insurers that I speak with, you know, streamlining, making everything kind of a one stop shop, or at least more seamless um, and less kind of clunky as it has been.
0: You know, the last story I wanted to talk about was the fact that um, so this will be airing on Wednesday, but on Tuesday we had new home sales and they dropped for the third month in a row, um, and that's that's kind of a big deal. Um, you know, the the fact that they dropped then means that we've got nine months of inventory of new homes on the market. Now that's, that's you know, sounds so impressive. It, it's not. We're still in sort of an inventory crisis, but um, it is way better than what we have for existing homes, which I think is 2.2, something like that.
1: Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, yeah, uh, new home sales dropped for the third consecutive month. Um, it dropped 16.6% from March to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 591 thousand homes. Um, and that's the, the lowest annualized rates, uh, since April of 2020, uh, year over year, just for some greater context, new home sales were down 26.9% in April, which is a sizable drop, you know, over a quarter. Um, so that's, that's a big. And, you know, I think, A lot of this has to do with rising mortgage rates. Um, You know, in April, that was kind of really when the heat turned up on interest rates and they really kind of shot up to levels we hadn't seen in about a decade. Um, And that, you know, definitely drove some people out of the market and you know some of your smaller mom and pop investors as well who had been purchasing homes. I spoke to some agents, and they're seeing less of these kind of small scale investors on the market now that interest rates are uh, have gone up. Um, so that's another thing. And even while interest rates are going up, home prices are still going up. I mean, the median sales price of a new home in April rose to four hundred and uh, to over four hundred and fifty thousand dollars, up from. Uh, 436,000 in March. So, prices are going up, interest rates are going up, and it's, you know, driving some buyers kind of out of the market. Um other buyers are just fatigued at this point and, you know, thinking they might wait it out if they can. And I I spoke with an agent earlier today in Fort Collins, Colorado, and he said in the past, you know, 2-3 weeks he's really seen things kind of cool off and, you know, homes that previously would They would see ten to fifteen offers on. It's maybe you know two, three, four. So it's still getting you know multiple offer situations, but it's not this hectic, intense kind of dynamic that it was a couple months ago, and especially a year ago.
0: Yeah, and that's one thing to note is that you know that drop of twenty six point nine percent that was year over year. So you know coming off of you know a twenty six. A uh, percent drop from last year is still probably a really good year <laughs> in some ways, right? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, we're back to to more of a normalized housing market, if you want to say that. I think our lead analyst would say a, a healthier housing market, a balanced housing market. Even so, you know, getting two, three, four offers is um, is really better than, than normal. Right. But also I think it's going to require sellers, um, to really think about how they're listing their house. This is not the now in some markets still crazy, hot, still wild, but probably not the same as like, okay, you can, you know, price it a hundred thousand over what you think it's going to go for. And you're still going to get an offer. Like I, I do think some of that is definitely slowing down.
1: Yes. Yeah. A lot of agents I've been speaking with are saying that, you know, homebuyers are getting a bit more budget wise and discerning in terms of, you know, homes that are overpriced or potentially overpriced. Um, And the ones that are, you know, priced a little too high might be sitting a little longer or um, have to undergo price drops or they might get an offer, but it might be below asking. And Um, You know, sellers have to really be conscientious of kind of what's going on and what conditions buyers are having to deal with right now. And, you know, be aware that if this is not the market it was a couple months ago and definitely not the market it was a year ago, it's still a great time to sell a home. You just have to have more strategy and be a little bit more precise in kind of your pricing than you know, you were able to be a year ago.
0: Absolutely. No, that's true. It's um it's funny because I'm in a uh we're we're looking to sell our house. And so I was talking to some neighbors and I thought it was interesting. She said, Yeah, my mom ended up just having to buy one of the spec homes because, you know, there was nothing in this neighborhood to buy. And and uh her mom's moving from California. She goes, Yeah, you know, she's coming with California money. So, you know, it's like nothing to her or whatever. And I just thought that was so funny. I was like, there are so many places in the country where, when you're coming in with California money, <laughs> those that's what's in in some places really pushing things up because you know there's just less price sensitivity because they're coming in with a different expectation of what you get for your money.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, and it's it's funny looking at some of these different markets across the country that are super hot uh, still and are you know seeing 20 25% year over year price increases and what the median home price is compared to you know the median home price in New York or California or some parts of Florida and it's still just a fraction of what the median home price is there so if you're moving from you know one of these pricier metro areas to some of these other areas that have become popular you know, your budget can go a lot further um, than it did before.
0: Absolutely. It is it is definitely disrupting some of those markets. Well, Berkeley, what are you um, focused on next? Um, you mentioned the Fort Collins story. What does that look like?
1: So that story is actually really interesting um, because, you know, Colorado has been one of these areas that a lot of people have, Move to, and the population has grown quite a bit over the past few years. But one of the things that they're having to deal with throughout the state and in Fort Collins as well, of course, is issues with water and not having enough water to uh, sustain the population growth and be able to do everything that everyone wants to do with water and, you know, run the dishwasher every day, do multiple loads of laundry throughout the week. Um, you know, have a garden or a landscape that requires regular watering, and this is because of um, the 1922 Colorado River Compact, which requires that a certain amount of the the contents of the Colorado River have to be available for use in areas basically downstream. So we're talking about California and Las Vegas and areas that are very arid in general. And this has only you know, gotten worse with population growth and climate change. And then the original estimate of kind of the volume of water in the Colorado River was overestimated. And that's what the amounts are based on is this overestimation. And that's you know causing other issues, and then people downstream or the communities downstream also have the ability to you know tap more water and request more water, um, and that that's putting a bit of strain kind of on communities up the river. And um, I spoke with someone at Northern Water, which is the water provider in Fort Collins. Um, and they're doing a lot of education, um, about, you know, landscape and things like that. Um, cause they, they said they've gotten pretty, you know, been pretty successful at getting people to, um, you know, change some of their other habits in terms of like washing their car or washing dishes when the dishwasher is full and not when it's, you know, half full or whatever and things like that. So they've moved on to kind of dealing with landscaping and they're you know, the big message that they had was that, like, there is enough water. It's just we have to be smart with how we use it. And, you know, maybe we can't do everything that we want to do all the time with the water. And, you know, that's as we kind of head further into the future and have to deal with the uh, effects of climate change. That's something we all will have to consider with the different resources that are available. But it's really interesting to see Fort Collins kind of tackle that issue right now,
0: especially with the growth in Colorado. I mean, it, you know, all of Colorado is just been it's been such a destination for people in the pandemic and just over the last few years. But we've seen just huge exodus out of California into Colorado. So it's it's very ironic that so much of the water in Colorado belongs to California and and what that's going to do to growth in Colorado. So really looking forward to that story coming out. We will look for that. But, um, Brooklyn, thanks so much for being on today. Of course. Thanks for having me.
1: How have the 2022 housing market forecast changed? Or